This Parsha podcast is dedicated in the merit of the complete and speedy recovery of Ezra Chaim ben Devorah. This is an eight-year-old boy who was recently diagnosed with HLH, which is an aggressive disease of the immune system. Young Ezra, or Aiden as he is called, he's actually in urgent need of a bone marrow transplant. According to the experts, Aiden's best chance for a cure is to find his life-saving bone marrow donor. Now, how do they determine who is a match for Aiden? People who would consider potentially saving his life, they do a little cheek swab, and that's tested. And so far, actually 2,800 people have already been swabbed to see if they're matches, but the right one has not been found. So this is a huge opportunity for a mitzvah, and I encourage everyone who can to get swabbed. I surmise that even if you turn out to not be a candidate, you still try to save a life, and therefore you still get the mitzvah of trying to save a life, even if it didn't actually work out. It's not your fault you were in a match, so get swabbed. Maybe you will save Aiden's life. But regardless, you'll get an enormous mitzvah. I'm going to include in the podcast description, the show notes, how to find out more. There's a website, giftoflife.org, slash DC, slash Aiden. There's also an Instagram page. I actually registered. It took me two minutes, and they are mailing me a kit with a prepaid envelope to just make a little cheat swab. I remember when I was in Yeshiva in Israel, I actually had a friend in yeshiva, who was on one of these registries, and he was actually a match for someone who needed a bone marrow transplant. He did it and saved a life. So this is a nice opportunity, and the links, again, are in the description. But regardless, we hope and pray that Aiden, Ezra Chaim ben Devora, will merit a complete and total recovery. Now, I mentioned to y'all a couple of weeks ago that... Uh, I decided to record an audiobook for my new book upon a 10-stringed harp. Now, I had a problem. Actually, I had two problems. Problem number one is that I didn't really have any time in my week. I was like looking at my calendar. It's really full and there's not really a lot of space in it. So that was problem number one. When am I going to record this? I had a second problem. Maybe this is something that y'all have as well or some of y'all. That when Shabbos is over and it's now not Shabbos anymore and the extra soul that we have on Shabbos departs, I kind of feel like lethargic and unmotivated. I don't know if maybe this is just me, but this is just the way it is. And every, every week I'm trying to figure out what can I do that's productive? How could I make something out of, you know, Matzah Shabbos, Shabbos is over Saturday night, the week is starting. I want to do something productive and I just, I just don't feel motivated. So I decided to kill two birds with one stone. So now every week after Shabbos, after Havdalah, I come to the Torch Center, to the studios. It's super quiet here. It's a great environment for doing this this recording. You know, they're very particular about the production, the production of how this is done. It's all has to be done to specifications. There can't be any extra noises or anything like that. So uh, that is working well. And, you know, I was thinking... How hard could it be to record an audiobook? I'm in the Torch Center studio every week, every day. I'm recording podcasts. It's no big deal. Turns out it is a big deal because everything's been done in a different format and you have to read the actual book. And I did two chapters and I was reading the book and I made the mistake of using the actual physical book. So I'm looking down at the book and I'm, I'm looking down so my mouth is not facing the microphone. And then you hear the rustling of the pages as I turn the book. So um, it's, a, it's a learning experience for me. You have to be patient, slow and steady. But thank God that project is underway. And I want to thank my dear friends, uh, Josh, Mike, Paul, and Jeff. And I protected the anonymity of uh, these kind-hearted people. They all reached out to generously contribute towards this project. I really appreciate your support and your friendship. If you would like to chip in to this audiobook project, send me an email, rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Today we're going to try to tackle maybe one of the most ambitious subjects that we have attempted to cover on the Parsha podcast yet. 
We're going to talk about some, I think, supremely interesting things. But I think I get the sense that I really need a little bit of your cooperation to pull this off. And the reason for it is because the subject matter, it's going to be a bit different. We're going to take a stab at one of the most difficult subjects yet. And we're going to do some really lofty and advanced themes. We're going to talk about themes that are really, frankly, way above me. Some extremely advanced stuff. And you're going to hear themes that I fully profess to know nothing about. I can, however, I can read Hebrew. And what I found was so fascinating and interesting, I figured I'd share it. But it's going to be initially something which is very lofty and advanced. And then, please God, we're going to bring it down to our level and hopefully share some ideas that will be more relatable, more useful, and more helpful for us. You know, speaking to us as simpletons, as lay people, as ordinary common folk. Now, if you like it, send me an email, rabbiwalmajib.com. If you don't, if you did, I didn't pull it off, send me an email as well. In our parsha, we read about the Shemitah and the Yovel. You come to the land of Israel, the land is apportioned, everyone has a farm, and some people plant the wheat and some the barley and some have orchards. And then comes along Shemitah, and Shemitah is like Shabbos for the land. For an entire year, just like on Shabbos, you work for six days, the seventh day Shabbos, you don't work. Shemitah is like that. On a, on a yearly schedule for the land. Six years, you work the land, you plow, you till, you plant, you pluck out the weeds, you do all the things you need to do, you harvest. The seventh year, it's the sabbatical. You take a year off. Not just you, everyone in the land. The land lays fallow. That's the Shemitah. And then you count seven Shemitah cycles seven sabbaticals, and then you have the 50th year, which is the Yovel, which is the Jubilee. And the Jubilee is like a super Shemitah. It's Shemitah plus. It's consecrated to be holy. So first of all, all the agricultural laws of Shemitah apply. But in addition, there is a call of freedom in the land. You blow the shofar on Yom Kippur, and all the slaves are released. And certain or most real estate deals are dialed back and they go back to their original owners. Everything gets reset to square one. Now, of course, it's important for us to note that both Shemitah, which is every seventh year, and Yova, which is every 50th year, they apply only the land of Israel. And therefore, if we read this, it's probably not relevant to us in a practical way. Why? Because most of us, were not farmers. And even if we are farmers from Kansas or Illinois or Nebraska, and it should be noted that the Parsha podcast is very popular, I've been told, in the agricultural community. Even if you are a farmer, you don't need to fret about this because this does not apply to you. It applies only in the land of Israel. Now, in the land of Israel, the Shemitah does apply. In fact, this year, 2022, is a Shemitah year. 01, 08, 2015, 2022, every seven years. Again, 2029. So this year, the farmers in Israel, they take a year off. The land takes a sabbatical. The earth lies fallow. But this does not apply in the diaspora. And even in the land of Israel, there is no Yovel. We don't have that 50, that 50 year, which is after seven cycles of seven, we don't have the 50th year. Just the basic idea over here that, you know, just like there's the weekly schedule of the Shabbos, that's on one dimension. So every day we count six days plus seventh, the seventh day of Shabbos. And then kind of on a, on a higher dimension, you have the yearly schedule. Every seventh year is the Shemitah, that's the sabbatical. And then you have the sabbatical schedule. Every seventh sabbatical, you have the Jubilee, which is the Great Reset, which is the Yovel. And this is the subject that I want to tackle today. This is the subject that we're going to try to probe. 
the secrets of the mysterious year, the Yovel year. Now, of course, it's important to mention the trivia that uh, this verse actually, or this subject appears on the Liberty Bell, chapter 25, verse 10. You proclaim liberty throughout the land upon all its inhabitants. But what is the secret of Yovel? What is going on with this 50th year? And when we examine this subject deeply, we find it's it's a riddle, it's an enigma, it's a mystery. So first of all, maybe this is not such a big problem, but the the Yovel, the term Yovel, Rashi tells us that Yovel is named after the blast of the shofar that we do on Yom Kippur. So in the year of the Yovel, the 50th year, 10 days into the year, you blow the shofar on Yom Kippur, and Yovel is a name of a horn or of an animal, and therefore the name of this whole year is named after this blast of the shofar on Yom Kippur. Now, to me, that seems kind of tangential. You know, if we had to assess what is the super sabbatical we have the, the one year off and then we have the, the extra 50th year off. It seems like capturing its essence with the blast of the chauffeur seems a little bit tangential. But in general, you know, the whole idea seems really, really impractical. You know, to take a whole year off from working sounds like a stretch in any industry. And Shemitah on its own seems really impractical. And again, we're not used to living in an agrarian society, but suppose you live in a society where if you made food, you have what to eat. If you don't make food, you don't have what to eat, and therefore you are liable to die. But every seventh year, you take a year off. But you know what? It's only every seventh year, and the verse promises we'll have the extra bumper crop on year six. But, but then we have the double year off, and that's the oval. After year... 49. It's been a whole year. You haven't worked in a year. There's another year off. Guess what? Another year off. Year 7, 14, 21, 28. Everything's spaced out nicely. 35, 42, 49, and 50. Back-to-back years with no work on the field. Why is the Yovel coming directly after a Shemitah? Now, again, I mentioned this. This is a, it's a theoretical idea. The Oval does not apply today, sans temple, even in the land. You know, most of us are not farmers. We're in the diaspora, most of us. But what do we make of this mitzvah? This is a, this is a mitzvah. This is a central mitzvah in our parasha. The idea of the Oval, is there anything in it for us to understand? Is there any lesson for us? Is there any takeaway that we can have? Is it possible for us to make the concept of Yovel useful and helpful and insightful? For us. Now, I did see a very intimidating Ramban. This is the second verse of our Parsha. And he says like this. He's talking first about the Shemitah. And he's explaining the Shemitah. And he says, here in this subject, we have been awakened to a great secret in the secrets of the Torah. So he's warning us that what he's about to tell us is a secret, but not just any secret, a great secret. And not just any great secret, one of the great secrets of the Torah. And again, this is coming from the Ramban. He, he doesn't just throw out superlatives and hyperbole. There's something really deep going on over here. And then he says, I want you to cup your ears and listen very carefully. Listen to what I am entitled to, what I'm allowed to tell you. And I'm going to tell you in a way that if you are meritorious, if you understand the hints and the subtleties, you'll understand, but probably you won't understand. That's what he tells us. I don't remember reading such an intimidating preamble. And then he proceeds to talk about a very lofty idea. 
and it's written in a very in a very nuanced manner, like he's trying to cover his tracks. But this is what he says. He says that the six days of Genesis correspond to the six thousand years from Adam until the end of the world. And then the seventh day of Genesis, which is Shabbos, that corresponds to Olam Abba. And this is based upon the ancient tradition, featured, of course, in the Talmud, that our world is a 6,000-year enterprise. From Adam, 6,000 years. And then there's another 1,000 years which is like Olam Abba or some other dimension of existence, 6,000 plus 1,000, 7,000 in total. Says the Ramban, or shall we say hints the Ramban, after that 7,000th year, the world is reborn for another 6,000 plus 1,000 years. And there are actually seven cycles of 7,000 years. So seven cycles of six plus one. And then you have the 50,000th year. And that symbolizes the ultimate conclusion of this world. And just like on the Yovel, every man goes back to their house and goes back to their land. That's hinting to us, says the Ramban that all of us and our souls will go back home to the land of the living, to the actual origin of our soul. Now, of course, this is so hard for us to wrap our heads around. Like, what's he even saying? Such advanced ideas. But, of course, we know that our soul emanates from a place that's even higher than angels. We don't know about that. We're not aware of that because that's why we, we live. We have free will because we can't even quantify our soul. We don't connect to our soul on a sensory level, but it's there, it's within us, and it's loftier than angels. And it's placed in this world in a very unnatural setting for it, but its ultimate destiny is for it to go home. Our soul is like a slave taken away from his family and put in a very foreign place, and then Yovel, the slave goes back home, Yovel, this 50,000th year, our soul goes back home. And then you have the ancestral lands. This is the lands given apportioned to the tribes by Joshua. And you sell it, and it's not yours. Comes along Yovel, and it is restored back to its original owner. Similarly, our soul, our essence, goes back to its original location on that 50th year, or the 50,000th year, because every one day of God, says the Ramban, quoting a verse in Psalms, every one day of God is equivalent to a thousand years of us, and therefore if there are six days of creation plus one of Shabbos, it's referring to six thousand years plus one thousand years, and then it follows the Shemitah cycle and the Yovel cycle, so 50,000 years, and then we all go back to our origins. Again, very advanced stuff here. And then he ends with another intimidating statement that the 50th realm is completely beyond us. This is the one secret that was withheld even from Moshe. Moshe, the greatest of them all, the greatest of the prophets, the giant who went up to heaven, wrestled with the angels, extracted Torah, brought it down to us. And taught it to us, Moshe. There's one level, there's one realm of secrets that Moshe was not entitled to perceive. And that's known as the 50th level, the 50th gate of wisdom. And all of them were given to Moshe, but he has one little bit that's withheld from him. There's just one level that's beyond Moshe, and that's that 50th level. And that's that 50th gate of wisdom, and that's totally beyond us, and that is hinted to in the Yovel. What an idea here from the Ramban. A secret, a great secret from the great secrets of the Torah. Listen very carefully. 
with a 6,000-year world and then a 1,000 years of Alamabat or of some other dimension. And then there's a renewal for another 6,000 years and so on following the Shemitah cycle. Eventually, you arrive at the 50,000-year point. And whatever that refers to, that's the equivalent of the Yovel. And that's a secret so advanced beyond even what Moshe was able to see. And he adds, it was it's hinted to in the first verse of the Torah. And as we know, the deepest secrets of the Torah always seem to find their roots in Genesis. Now, as an aside, this idea or this calculation of the Ramban was the basis of one of the most interesting podcasts that I ever had the privilege to record. It was a podcast titled Age of the Universe, Can Torah and Science Be Reconciled? And that was not released, I don't think it was, on the Parsha podcast. It was instead released on my other show, one of my other shows called This Jewish Life Podcast. It was recorded in February 2020. Do you remember when that was? Before the pandemic, right before the pandemic, when the specter of that virus was just looming above us. So there was a yomly mood in the Jewish Federation of Houston, and that is what I recorded there. Highly recommended, but it involves this idea that our our universe or our world, we have this 6,000-year world, but this is not the first world that existed. In fact, the Midrash says that they might have created worlds and destroyed them, and then this is not the new, the only world that we've had, and the like. Uh, and thus, if you haven't heard that yet, I'd recommend going to this Jewish Life podcast and uh, and finding that episode because it's based upon this calculation of the Ramban. But obviously, it's a very lofty, very lofty idea. Of, of the Ramban to understand what is happening here. What's the secret? What is going on with this 50th year of the Yovel? Now, I will tell you that from my basic research, I find that the, that the secrets in this subject in Yovel, they really run deep. And as I mentioned earlier, they tend to go back to Genesis as Torah secrets tend to do. So there is an incredible comment that I read in Rabbeinu B'chaya, in Book of Genesis, chapter 4, verse 3. This was sent to me courtesy of my brilliant brother-in-law, Shmuley Botnik. And, of course, Genesis chapter 4 is talking about Cain and Abel. Remember that story? Two brothers! How'd that work out? Not so good. Some uh, brotherly love, or shall we say, brotherly hate. Cain brings a sacrifice, an offering. It's rejected by God. Abel brings an offering. It is accepted by God. Cain gets angry, and he slays his brother. Of course, that's the basic contours of the story. But Rabbeinu B'chaya says some really interesting things about this. So first of all, he says that the offering of Cain was subpar. It was mediocre. It wasn't the choicest fruits. It wasn't even fruits of the tree. It wasn't from the species that Israel is praised with. He gave the cheap stuff. He gave the secondhand stuff. He gave the leftovers for God. The fruits that he offered were of lower quality. Whereas when Abel brought an offering, the verse elaborates upon it because he brought the choicest of offerings. Then he says something absolutely eye-opening. When did this happen? When did the episode of the offerings of Cain and Abel happen and the, the brotherly conflict and the fratricide when Cain murdered his brother. When did that happen? When did this offering, as it's called in the Torah, the mincha, which is a kind of a, uh, an offering brought to God, when did that happen? So he tells us it happened on day 50 of the creation of the world. 
50 days into creation, you have the Cain and Abel story and the offering of Cain that was rejected and the offering of Abel that was accepted. And then he adds, there's another 50th day. That, of course, is a reference to Shavuos. 50 days after the Exodus is the Mount Sinai Revelation. We're about to get there in a couple of weeks. And in fact, Shavuos, the festival of Shavuos, is identified in the Torah as the one that comes 50 days after the Exodus. And on Shavuos, there's a special offering that is brought, a mincha, an offering. Says Rabbeinu Bechaya, this explains the episode of Cain and Abel and the offerings, the minchas that they brought, explains the offering, which happened, of course, which happened on day 50. That explains the other offering that we bring on day 50, namely the Shteelechem, the, the special offering that's brought on Shavuos on day 50. And this also shows us God's ways of reward and punishment. Cain was punished for his behavior. And Abel was rewarded for his behavior. On day 50, Cain murdered Abel. On day 50, Moses ascended to heaven to get the Torah. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar is invoking the accepted Kabbalistic tradition that Moshe was a reincarnation of Abel. I think we've actually mentioned this in a podcast many moons ago, we talked about how Jethro was a reincarnation of, of Cain and Moshe was a reincarnation of Abel and they were warring brothers initially, but in their second go-round, or maybe it was even more go-rounds, but when they met each other again, that relationship was mended. That's what he's telling us, that on this day, we're able, 50th day, Abel brought an offering and he was killed for it. Well, he was rewarded because on the, on the next 50th day, the reincarnation of Abel, namely Moshe, he went up to heaven to get the Torah. And on that same day, Cain was cursed because Cain is symbolic of the Eitzharah, of the evil inclination. And what happened to the evil inclination on the 50th day? On the 50th day, Namely, by Mount Sinai. Pascha Zuamas on the Talmud says, the Yetzirah, the inclination, departed from the Jewish people. It was cursed. It was slaughtered. It was removed. Moreover, in the future, in the future 50th day, and this is a reference to the end of times, the Yetzirah is going to be completely slaughtered. And he's again invoking the idea found in the Talmud, in the book of Sukkot, page 52a, the idea that in the distant future, the Yetzirah will be slaughtered in front of the righteous and in front of the wicked. And that's going to be the 50th day, not on Shavuos per se, but on the 50th day of God, namely on the 50,000th year, based upon our calculation, and that's why he explains the Shteyalechem, the offering that we bring on Shavuos is made out of chametz. Why? Because that is corresponding to the Yovel when the Yetzirah will be defanged and be removed. It will no longer be a threat. And then he ends off his piece by saying, understand this because this is very complicated. So what do we have over here? We have this incredible calculation here of the Ramban, and it's adopted by Rabbeinu B'chaya here, that this 50, whenever you see the number 50, your red flag should go off in your head. There's something very special and Kabbalistic about it. It's the 50th level. It's the highest level. It's a reference to, we're told, to Sinai Revelation. It's that gate of wisdom that is locked out from even Moshe. It's a reference to the absolute end of time. That's the end of, of this world and of this enterprise. And it goes back to the whole episode of Cain and Abel. And Shavuos is the day 
When the force of Cain was diminished, a punishment for what he did, the venom of the serpent ceased on that day. And then in the larger picture, on the 50th millennium, which is like a day, at least in the eyes of God, the Yetzirah will be completely slaughtered. These are some of the ideas that I saw on Yovel. Now, I asked you at the beginning, I said, I'm going to need your cooperation to get through this because, because these ideas, they're very advanced. It's kind of like, like head swirling ideas. It's, it's really hard for us to make any, any useful takeaway out of this. It's nice to see how it all fits in. It's all neat. It is cool to understand some of the bigger picture, what's actually happening behind the scenes. You know, the Ramban actually told us these things, even though he wrote it in a, in a cryptic fashion. And he says, well, I can't really reveal it to you, but listen carefully. So, so obviously there's something for us to understand about this, but on a practical level, I feel like it's really hard to implement any of these ideas in a practical sense. It's almost like the subject of Yovel is beyond us. But I want to share, I want to share two more ways to understand this idea of Yov of the 50th year of this jubilee, or at least ways to make it more relevant to us. And the first idea I want to share comes courtesy of my grandfather, a blessed memory. I read this week an amazing piece in his vast writings. I saw it for the first time this year. An absolute incredible piece. And I'm going to take some liberties in how I'm going to frame it because it was a little bit of a hard piece to, to navigate. But here is the, the crux of the idea. We talk a lot about our mission in life. You have so much potential and you need to access it and to actualize it and identify it. And we're all unique. And we have a special mission to attain. And each one of us was given a precisely tailored collection of good and bad that is uniquely suited for what we need to do in life. We all have special gifts, the combination of which has never been seen before. We all have special or tailored, at least, flaws, shortcomings, the likes of which or the combination, the cocktail has not been seen before. We're all unique. We're all one of one. Every person is really their own world. We all have our own mission to fulfill. You have to identify what that is. Find our potential. Actualize it. Develop it. But here's the question. Those ideas, of course, we talk about a lot. Listen to this question. A question that I don't think we've we've ever talked about. What happens when someone identifies their potential, identifies their mission, discovers why God wanted them to be in this world and actually does it like a total champ, pulls it off. Someone who actually lives up to the potential, actualizes it, accomplishes it, attains it, you fulfill it. This is like the good version of the dog catching the car problem. This is what we're striving to do, right? You want to fulfill your potential, right? Now, of course, we don't always know what it is. But suppose, just on the principle level, what happens if someone actually does it? They achieve their potential. What happens now? Is it just, just you know, curtains for them? Pack your bags. You're done for. It was nice knowing you. What an interesting question. I don't think we've discussed it in the past. What do you think the answer is? You have a mission. You're here to do something. You do it. Now what? You've accomplished it. Bravo. Bravo. You did it. What now? So let me give you an example of this. We know, of course, one of the great heroes of all time is Abraham. And with Abraham, we happen to know what his mission was. Why? Because our sages tell us what his mission was. Our sages tell us that Abraham was given 10 tests, 10 trials. And he triumphed in all of his trials. 
Abraham was tested over the course of his storyline in the Torah ten different times. And he was successful in all of them. Well, what was the final test? So according to most of the opinions, it was the binding of Isaac. That's the exclamation point on Abraham's legacy. Of course, we invoke it every Rosh Hashanah. It provides everlasting merit for his descendants. This is Genesis chapter 22. God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, the one that you love. and Bring it to Mount Moriah. Bring him as a sacrifice for me. And of course, we've spoken about this numerous times in the past. A very difficult test. Abraham worked so hard to finally have a son, Isaac. Isaac is destined to be his continuity. And God says, well, Isaac is your true heir, not Ishmael. Oh, now God tells you, take him and offer him as a sacrifice. And obviously, that directly conflicts with what God told you in the past. And Abraham doesn't question. Abraham obeys completely. Abraham is up to the test. And that's the end of Abraham's mission, right? Well, the Torah even tells us when that story is over, this is chapter 22, verse 12, God tells him, now I know that you fear God. You did not withhold your son, your sole son, your single son from me. Mission accomplished. Abraham was given the most difficult mission of all, and he pulled it off. He did it. But what happens next? How old was Abraham when he succeeded in the final trial of the ten test the 10 trials. Well, the, the scriptures is moot about this, but the Midrash tells us that Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born and Isaac was 37 years old by the binding of Isaac episode. Ergo, Abraham was 137 when he finished his mission. When did Abraham die? Abraham died at the age of 175, nearly 40 years after he reached the mountaintop, quite literally, of Mount Moriah and accomplished his mission. He finished the mission. The mission's over. He did it. He succeeded. Now I know that you fear God. What was Abraham doing for the last 40 years of his life? Did he retire to Palm Springs, Scottsdale? Did he take up fly fishing and golf and taxidermy? Did he go join the grand jury? Did Abraham really take his foot off the gas? There's no way. What happened the finally 40 years of Abraham's life? Now, the Talmud tells us explicitly that this is, you know, the, the retirement, just mailing it in, it's, it's not our way. The very last page of the book of Brachos, this is 64, page 64, the very end of the first book of Talmud. Amar Barashi Amarav, Talmidei Chachamim, the righteous, the scholars. Ein lehemenucha. They never rest. They never rest on their laurels. Lo ba'olamazeh, v'lo ba'olamabah. Not in this world, and not in the next world. Rashi tells us, they go mi yeshiva li yeshiva, from study to study, umi midrash le midrash, and from midrash, which is another word for study, academy to the academy, from one academy to the other academy, from one study to the other study. Shanamar quotes a verse, scripture, yechu michael achal. They go from strength to strength. They appear to God in Zion. This tells us explicitly that the idea of just complacency, of just mailing it in, that's not our way. So what did Abraham do for the last 40 years? So here's the answer. When someone succeeds in one mission... They get upgraded. You can even say that they get a new soul. 
Your soul is tailored for your mission. You finish your mission, you get a new soul. You get a new mission. And there's a format. There's a format. And it operates in different dimensions. Let's like let's look at like a weekly schedule. You have something you need to do this week. You have a mission. There's a weekly mission. And comes along Shabbos, and of course the Talmud tells us that on Shabbos you get an extra soul. What does that mean? It means if you have succeeded in what you need to do, now there's this Shabbos, which is like this day of a of a, of a touch point with the divine, and you have an extra soul. Meaning that now you've been upgraded. And when Shabbos ends, there's a new mission. You've reached your potential. There's this commune with God. And you get an upgraded soul and a new mission. And you spend the next week on a slightly higher plane of existence. And you're working on the new goal. And then you upgrade in the next station. And each week and each... Shabbos is another station of potential. And then you begin the next week with the next, with the next goal, with the next mission, with the next objective. Our potential is truly unlimited. We can be constantly ascending. But of course, you have to work. You have to strive and put in the effort and the time and the energy and the capacity to achieve and to unlock each level. But once you do it, it follows this format. For six days, you work really hard on your mission. This is, again, on the weekly dimension. And then on Shabbos, you have this station, this touch point. You get the extra soul, and you start the next week, not at ground zero where you were the previous week, But now you have a new mission, a new week with a new upgraded soul, with a new upgraded potential. And this growth continues on this on this infinite continuum. And that's on the weekly, so to speak, dimension. And then on the higher dimension, you have the yearly count. You have the six years plus the seventh year, which is the Shemitah year, which is like a Shabbos on the yearly level, on the yearly schedule. And you come out of it, if you accomplish the mission on that dimension... You come out of it with an upgraded soul and a higher potential, and you start again, and you continually upgrade it. And then every 50 years, on an even higher dimension, this happens again. So Abraham, we know what his mission was, or we at least know what one of his missions were. We were given a window into what God wanted of him. We're told he had had 10 tests. The likes of which, of course, we cannot fathom a mortal and a fallible human being able to succeed and to be triumph over. But the Torah tells us Abraham's journey, at least one part, one module of Abraham's continuous ascent. Now we'll note that just as we're not told about what Abraham did and the missions that he undertook and the ascents that's a weird word, ascent, ascent, the plural ascents that he did after the age of 137, we're also not told what happened, what missions he undertook before the age of 75. Abraham, his, his whole story, his whole storyline of the Torah, one of the most important features in the Torah, but his whole storyline is just, just his, like kind of his midlife. And that's really it. We're told his birth, but then we meet him. He's 75 years old. What happened? Where did he come from? That's that's not told to us. It seems obvious that when Abraham was born, he wasn't born with the kind of capacity and the kind of soul to be able to undertake such a difficult mission of the Ten Tests of Abraham. That's how he started off his life. That's not the life mission from day one. You grow up in a pagan family, everyone's doing idolatry, and now you're, you're, you're expected to do that? Of course not. When he was born... He had a much, much, much smaller soul or less potent potential. And then he did it and he scaled up and he was continuously upgrading cycle after cycle, ascent after ascent, following this like 
like orbital pattern of hard, committed work and upgrading and more hard, committed work week after week, year after year, sabbatical after sabbatical, decade after decade. And we're only shown one, one part of it, one module. And that, of course, is the 10 trials of Abraham. And when he's done, he has this commune with God. God says, great job. Now I know that you, that you listened to me. And then he was graduated to the next level. But he didn't go to Scottsdale, take up skeet shooting. He proceeded to the next great mission. Again, the Talmud tells us, the last page of the book of Brachos, there is no rest. You don't just sit around and kick your feet up. That's not what a human's all about. And that mission, of course, the mission of Abraham, is so absolutely lofty. And then he accomplishes it. And the next mission is even level up. Now, what Abraham was doing the last 40 years, we know nothing about. The Torah didn't reveal to us anything about the nature of Abraham's mission after he accomplished the mission of the 10 tests, because that's that's totally beyond us. But he had no rest, just like the Torah scholars, they have no rest, because that's, that's what the Almighty expects of us. We're humans. And what makes us unique is that we are dynamic. And a righteous human, what's the pinnacle of, of humanity, someone who is always upgrading and always pushing themselves a little further and a little further. The righteous human is dynamically ascending. In Scripture, Angels are also given a name, and they are called omdim. They stand. They're stationary, static, rigid, affixed into one place. Humans are mahalchem. We we walk. We're dynamic. And the righteous amongst us are always walking. They're always progressing, always upgrading, always leveling up. When you reach your potential, when the proverbial dog catches the car, that's a station where God says, congratulations, bravo, you you did it. Now I know that you've accomplished this. And that's a station of upgrading the soul, of having this, again, moment of commune with God. And you are given another mission on a higher level. And by the way, the Talmud tells us another incredible secret. That dynamism does not end with death. Remember what it says. That's a, the Tamicham, the righteous, they have no rest, not in this world and not in the next world. Even in Omaba, the righteous are not complacent. They don't become ossified and calcified and fossilized. And rigid, they are dynamic. That's what a human is. And that's why a human is greater than an angel on one level. And of course, the nature of what that looks like, what's the missions of the soul in Olam Abba, when all the inhibitors to the soul, the physicality and the body and the Yetzirah and all the nonsense and Mishagas in this world, when that's all gone, what's the nature of such a mission? Obviously, totally beyond us. But Abraham never stopped improving. Abraham always got new missions. And that's one of the lessons, perhaps, of the Yovel. Now, I want to read to you one line of this essay. This is, uh, again, an incredible essay my grandfather wrote. I take no credit. <laughs> I take no credit. I just read it. And I was so, I was so struck by, by what I read the essay in general, but this one line really hit me. He said, Moshe, what level did Moshe reach in his lifetime? Moshe, even in his lifetime, with all those inhibitors that 
you know, life the way we know it, hybrid of body and soul, he had all those inhibitors and nevertheless he reached incredible heights. And in his 120 years, he achieved levels that no mortal human has ever achieved. And now, my grandmother's my grandfather writing here. It's been 3,300 years since he passed. And who knows what levels he's working on now? Because again, death is not the cessation of human dynamism. Again, we have no idea what that looks like. But regardless, this incredible piece, I think, gives us an amazing takeaway of the concept of, of Shemitah and Yovel and Shabbos, this idea of the six plus one and six plus one and, and days and, and, and years and, and then of Shemitah cycles. This is an incredible takeaway. And this, to me, this was a revolutionary idea. Because we talk about this all the time. We talk about potential and try to achieve potential. You're put here to do something. You got to do it. Yeah, but then you do it and then you give it another test and you can upgrade and upgrade and upgrade. What a, what an incredible takeaway. Our potential is truly limitless. We're walkers. We're unlike the stationary angels. We're supposed to make something of ourselves. It's not a, a single fixed goal. It's a continuous, ongoing journey from station to station. And the structure of that is that you complete one module, and then there's this elevation of holiness, and that begets a slightly higher one, a slightly higher mission. And you can have an achievement, an accomplishment, a successful conquest of a mission, and it lights you all up, and then you're upgraded. And what dazzled you doesn't really, doesn't really last. It may seem trivial to you later on. Why? Because you've been upgraded. And that is the role of, of Shabbos. Both, of course, in the weekly and the sabbatical and the jubilee dimensions of it. You're building and growing and developing and ascending higher and higher. And you're never stagnant for a moment. Now, these, of course, uh, this, this is hard shoes to follow. We quoted the Ramban, 50,000 years, the secret, you got to listen really carefully. And then Rabbeinu B'chaya, what Cain and Abel and all that, and how it relates to the Yovel, and this incredible, just absolute incredible piece from my grandfather. And, uh, you know, it's, it's already 50 plus minutes into the podcast. I'm sure uh, most of the people who started already Ray gave up on us. Ah, but some of you are still there. How do I know that? Because in the past I've said, well, there's no one listening anymore, so I can say what I want. And then I get an email or a text. I actually, Rabbi, no, I was still listening. I listened to the end. So I appreciate all of y'all that are still listening. But I figured, you know, this is still my podcast. And uh, we're approaching the end. The few diehards are still listening with us. I'll give you my two cents. On, uh, on this issue, just again, really briefly, because our pursuit is trying to figure out what's, uh, you know, what's the takeaway that we can have from the Shemitah and the Yovel. It's such a foreign idea to us. Most of us, if you give us a shovel and say, okay, go plant a, go plant a tree, we wouldn't know which side of the shovel to, I, again, that's me. Not most of us. Y'all are very talented. But this is a foreign thing. What do we know about agrarian societies? We know we go to, we go to the store, we buy food. The whole idea of, of being a farmer, it's all foreign to most of us. So what can be a lesson that we can take away? So I want to suggest the following. You know, think of the Yovel. It comes, it comes right after the Shemitah. 49 is the seventh Shemitah. And then comes 50, back-to-back years. As they used to say in New York, back-to-back and a belly-to-belly. You want to have another year. You want to make it even more difficult. You have to have more faith in God. Make it a random year in the middle, year four. Stagger it a little bit better. Why is the, why is the Yolva coming right after, right after the Shemitah? So I want to suggest, you know, of course, our life, our life is subject to conflict. 
and the, the fundamental conflict of our life, the great tension that dominates our life is, is the battle between what kind of identity we're going to choose. Is it going to be the, the mundane or the spiritual, you know, the body or the soul? Who is going to be our master? The Yetzirah is called the foreign God, the foreign God within us. Or is it going to be the foreign God or is it going to be the Almighty? Are we going to make the, the physical realm, the physical existence, the temporary existence, is that going to be who we are, what we prioritize? Or is it going to be the spiritual and the permanent? And that's the conflict. And of course, it's, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard because I don't see the soul. You see a soul. I don't see a soul. But I do see all these other things and all these other distractions. We have a much more visceral connection to the physical and the, and the temporary and the mundane. And for us to have a connection of any sort to the spiritual, we gotta work really hard. We gotta summon our brains, gotta think about it, we've gotta go to the tradition, gotta go to the Torah. It's much harder. And you try to be spiritual, and, and you have an accomplishment. And you feel like you could just cruise your way towards being a more spiritual person, a loftier person, living for a higher purpose. And then you falter, you flounder, you have a spiritual relapse. It happens all the time. You think you're good, and the Yetzirahs, clever, conniving, talented, skilled, deft, and wily. And you attach from a different angle, you're not expecting it, and boom, you're in trouble now. You faltered. He knocked you off your... Standing and your spiritual stature is imperiled. What do you do now? So, of course, the verse tells us, Sheva Yipol Tzadik Fakam. The righteous falls down seven times, but gets up. What differentiates the righteous from the wicked? It's not that the, the righteous never falters. What makes the righteous special is what the righteous does, what the righteous do when they falter, when they stumble. The wicked, they allow themselves to wallow in despair. And then when they have a little bump in the road, they give up. And they allow their failures to define them. The righteous, they fall down, they fall down once and twice and seven times, and they get back up, and they go back to the drawing board, and they go back to battle, and they take another stab at it. Perhaps we can suggest that this is maybe one of the takeaways of the Shemitah, or a takeaway that can be valuable for us. You know, if you think about the Shemitah, what does the Shemitah represent? It's the pinnacle of faith. A year off. You're not working for a whole year, and you're going to live a spiritually oriented life. This is not, uh, you know, Shemitah, time to watch Netflix for a year. Instead of the physical, material agenda, dedicate one year out of seven What's that, 14%? 14%? Dedicate that to God. Commit yourself to the agenda of the soul. Prioritize the spiritual. In that great tension, choose what your brain tells you to choose and not where the dopamine quick hits empty calories are directing you to go. Shemitah is a great, a great spiritual high. And you do Shemitah. Wow! And what happens next? Year eight. Back to plowing, planting, got to pull out the weeds. On year eight, you feel like you've made no headway. You tried to reach this high point, and then you fell back down. And then you know what? You work really hard. And then year 15, well, year 14 is another Shemitah. Year 15 is another relapse. And so on. The Tzadik is faltering seven times, and he keeps on getting back up. But after seven times, he ceases to falter. After the seventh Shemitah comes along Yovel. After falling down seven times, he's stabilized and he's elevated. And that great high that he achieved on the Shemitah is now perpetuated onward. Perhaps one of the lessons here is 
if you are brave enough, if you're strong enough, if you're tenacious enough to stave off disappointments, you are on your way to winning the confrontation and to preserving your level. And after the seventh Shemitah, that stature is perpetuated into the Yovel. If you're a fighter, if you want to be a tzaddik, if you want to live a life here that doesn't just evaporate like a fleeting shadow, like a dream, like a little puff of air, you want to, you want to live a life that matters, you want to live a life for the soul, you have to learn this lesson. To earn something and to preserve something and to perpetuate it, you're going to need a fair amount of grit. Perseverance. You gotta work your way through seven downturns. And then, after the final time, you will secure those great achievements that you worked so hard to acquire. Okay, it's time for the exquisite insight. Are you ready? Exquisite insight. Email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. So for the seventh year, Shemitah year, you don't work. Well, you still need to eat. Even if you're very spiritual. We learn in Perkyavos, if there's no flour, there's no Torah. What are you going to eat on year seven? So that's addressed in our Parsha. Verse 21. When you say, what are we going to eat in the seventh year? We're not going to plant. We're not going to gather and harvest the field. What are we going to eat? So the verse tells us, God says, don't worry, I got your back. I will command my blessing for you on the sixth year. And you're going to have a bumper crop. And it's going to last you for three years. And you will plant on year eight, namely after the Shemitah. But you're still eating the food from year six. And the year six food will last you until year nine. You don't have to worry about what you're going to eat. God says, I got your back. I got your back. Don't worry about it. I have your back. I'll give you an extra bumper crop on year six. And therefore, you're asking me, again, verse 21, you're asked, what's going to be when you asked, what are we going to eat? Don't worry about it. I will command your blessing. So this is an idea, courtesy of the great Noam Elimelech, the great Hasidic master, on this, on this exchange, on this narrative in the Torah. We're told that God will give us the bumper crop, bumper crop on year six that will last us until year nine. But the way it's, Structured is that if you ask, when you ask, what am I going to eat? What am I going to eat on on year seven? I'm not going to plant. I'm not going to harvest. What am I going to eat? Oh, God will command the blessing. He will ensure that you will have an extra blessing. But what about if you don't ask? Let's say you don't ask. What am I going to eat on year seven? Is your is your destiny to just starve? Is the blessing only coming? Because you asked, what am I going to eat on year seven? So the normal Malik says something really, really nice. He says, if someone does not ask, what are they going to eat on year seven? Then they certainly will have a bumper crop. Because God takes care of his children. And that applies in every area of life. That's the idea of reliance on God. If you rely on God, God will make sure he will not let you down. You rely on him, he will let you down. The natural reliance on God, that always yields good results. If you rely on God, God won't let you down. The insight here is that even if you don't rely on God, you don't have that faith, and you say, what am I going to eat? There's a special added blessing that God will provide. But certainly, if you don't ask and you rely on God, he will provide for you. That's the typical way. When someone is reliant on God, we are told here, and they don't even ask the question, what am I going to do? What do you mean we're going to do? You have the Almighty. What are you worried about? 
You don't go crazy and freak out, pull your hair. What am I going to eat? You know that the Almighty's got your back. You rely on him. That's the typical way. God steps in when you rely upon him. But when you are so scared and you are demonstrating a lack of reliance on God, then the typical behavior is that, okay, if you're not relying on God, then okay, you don't want God to cover for you. You're on your own. Trust in God, true faith and reliance in God, is when it's so patently evident that he will cover you, that he will provide for you, that you don't even, you don't even mention it. So then he will certainly provide for you on year seven. The inside of the Shemitah is that even if you ask, even if you don't have reliance on God, he will cover for you. And of course, we have to give the disclaimer, this is a very high level, you know, reliance on God, that's... That's the mark of the really righteous. But the idea, I think, is a powerful idea that the Almighty takes care of those who rely upon him. But in Shemitah, even those who do not rely upon him, he will take care of them. I hope you enjoyed. Did you enjoy this as much as I did? I doubt it. I really doubt that there's anyone who's listening who enjoyed it as much as I did. Again, I want to remind everyone that this Parsha Podcast was dedicated in merit of the complete and speedy recovery of Ezra Chaim ben Devora. If you're able to go to the website that I mentioned above, giftoflife.org forward slash DC forward slash Aiden. See if you're a candidate. Maybe we could save a life over here. And regardless, keep him in your prayers. Ezra Chaim ben Devora. I hope you enjoyed. Have an incredible day. A wonderful, splendid rest of your week. And a fantastic, sensational, stupendous, exciting, uplifting, meaningful station of Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with Healthy Mighty, we'll talk again next week from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. This is the Parsha Podcast. My name is Yaakov Wolby. Email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com.